We're not crazy. The system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3, Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is Will Hall. I'm your host. And today we're doing a show on ibogaine therapy for addiction treatment and mental health issues. Ibogaine is a hallucinogenic or visionary substance that's derived from a sacred plant that's used in West Africa by the indigenous people there. And it's been very promising in um, providing uh, support and help for people in addiction recovery. So we're going to be speaking with um, someone who does work um, with that in Mexico. And first, a little bit about Madness Radio's producers, the Icarus Project and Freedom Center. Freedom Center is a local support, activism, and advocacy community uh, for people who have been in the mental health system and who are struggling with extreme states of consciousness. And you can find out more information on our website, which is freedom-center.org. We have a lot of different um, holistic services that are free and open to everyone in the community. We have a free yoga class. Uh, We have a free acupuncture clinic. Uh, We also have a writing group and a lot of different things that are going on. So just check out our website, which is freedom-center.org. Madness Radio is also co-produced by The Icarus Project, which is a primarily online, but also has a number of uh, local groups in a network of people who've been um, diagnosed with bipolar, other mental health disorders, labels, and who are looking beyond the medical framework for um, how to live. And Um, people who are using creativity and spirituality. And you can find out more information on the Icarus Project website, which is theicarusproject.net. And I just want to take a moment also to announce that Freedom Center was uh, recently awarded a $3,000 grant from the city of Northampton as part of the city's community block development grant, which is administering funds um, through a federal Program. So on behalf of the Freedom Center, I want to thank um, Mayor Higgins and um, everyone in the um, Northampton City government and the people of Northampton for supporting Freedom Center's work with low-income um, people who are struggling with different emotional distress states and who are looking to get access to um, mental health options and support and referrals and resources and holistic, um, holistic services. So my guest today is Rocky Caravelli. Rocky is calling from Sayulita, Mexico, where he is the director of the Awaken in the Dream House, which is an ibogaine treatment center working with addiction and other emotional, psychological uh, problems. He's 42 years old and began doing ibogaine treatments in December of 2003 after he detoxed from methadone, heroin, and methamphetamines when he was 25 years in active addiction. And... um, he was facing relapse and um, wasn't able to get out of the addiction, but then Ibogaine was really helpful. And we're going to hear about um, Rocky's experience and about the work that uh, they're doing in Mexico and Ibogaine treatments. So thanks a lot for joining us, Rocky. Uh, good afternoon. Well, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. So it's a really, it's an amazing story. And I, I want to make sure to just kind of start off by telling people that there's a, um, uh, I guess, a, a, it's a protest or demonstration happening on... Um, in New York City, and is that coming up sometime soon in September? Do you know about that, the Ibogaine Walk? Yeah, the Ibogaine Walk is, is, is really um, to help inform the East Coast of the uh, availability of Ibogaine 
and its use as a treatment for addiction therapy, especially in opiate withdrawal. Um, it's to inform the public, and they're going to go from city to city, starting in Washington, D.C., to New York City, which New York City has been kind of a kind of a, a birthplace for a lot of Ibogaine um, and this is public in, information. And, and this is in um, it's September. What's the date on that? You know, I think it starts on the 15th. 15th of September. It's going to go on. Yeah, 15th of September for six weeks. Um, it's going to be a, uh, like I said, they're going to go from one city to the next, basically trying to bring information about Ibogaine as a, as utilizing it as a therapy and any kind of public information, you know, about its practicality and use. Great. Well, it's, it sounds like it's a good time to be doing some public education work about Ibogaine. You can find out more about um, the Ibogaine Walk at ibogainewalk.com, and that's ibogaine, I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E, walk.com. Um, so, Rocky, how, I mean, you yourself have faced addiction and struggled with um, with these issues. Can give us some background of your own story here. I guess that's a good place to get started about how um, this has affected you and, and where you, you get involved in this. Yeah, what, what, what really happened was in about 19... 19- Oh, 1992, I was about 28 years old, and I'd uh, been using cocaine and alcohol and methamphetamine up to that point and started to do my first rehabilitation centers. went through several rehabilitation centers, and generally I would get uh, a reprieve from my addiction for anywhere from a one month to four months or six months, and you know, at one point I had a year, and... Um, I went back and forth with that for almost 12 years. Um, how, in and how, out of, um, how, how was your, what kind of addiction were you facing? I mean, were you, you were an IV drug user or what was? I was yeah, I was, I was IV methamphetamine for 12 years. And, you know, and if I wasn't, um, if I was afraid to get back into that, I would you know, smoke crack cocaine and, and, um, and drink heavily during those times with, um, I didn't start using heroin until the final year of my addiction process. I had been three years clean and um, had picked up again and um, just really started using the heroin and methamphetamine and um, could not get off of it, not even with the methadone. In fact, it seemed to accelerate it. Now, was, so this, had, like, was this something that was really just really affecting your life? I mean, there are, there are the rare folks who can be having addiction and sort of carry on with their job and their life and be in the community, but it sounds like it was really, really devastating for you. Yeah, I mean, for a period of time, you know, I was able to function normally, um, but it's it's always the same kind of pattern, you know, you, you, you get kind of clean for a while, you start using, and then you have the slow deterioration of your lifestyle, which is actually very frustrating for somebody who can get clean and then can't get clean, you know, and keeps going back and forth. But that last year, I couldn't get clean. I mean, I, I knew I was spiraling down. I, there, was, there was nothing that was going to stop the, uh, the addiction. There wasn't any treatment rehab. There wasn't any meetings. There wasn't, any, there wasn't anything available that was going to stop what was happening. And it was happening really fast and really hard. And I, my father died at 42, so I, I, was, I was like 39 at this time, and I, was, I, I just felt like I was basically in the same rut. I, I was deteriorating physically. And, um, you know, there wasn't any other kind of option for treatment. Buprenorphine was just starting to come out. That was kind of a joke. 
Um, so, you know, I started looking and heard about through the needle exchange about this Ibogaine treatment. I read it in Discover Magazine. I found another article. It just started showing up. And you also were diagnosed with different mental health. You were diagnosed with bipolar at one point. Is that right? Yeah, for like 15 years, they tried to use different psychiatric methods for treatment for what they thought were the core of my addiction um, trigger, I guess, or my addiction response, self-medicating, that kind of category of, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was, in one sense, it was true. I was completely not in my body, so whether I was on drugs or not, you know, it seemed like um, there, was, there was some kind of ailment in the system, you know, I, it, that, that's probably the best description. There was just a level of discomfort whether I was clean or whether I was loaded, you know, so. Um, so you tried all these different, you were basically a user for 25 years and you tried pretty much everything that was, was available. And then it sounds like through the harm reduction community, which is, which is great to hear because Freedom Center is very much um, part of the harm reduction mu- movement and takes a harm reduction approach. You found out about um, Ibogaine. How did, how did that happen? Well, I, my first call was to Eric Taub, who is now, um, who we're affiliated with as far as um, our major sponsor for, um, for clients and stuff. And Eric had referred me to the Ibogaine Association because I was on the West Coast. And I had made contact there with the director, Randy, and um, it took 10 months from my original call to manifest um, the money and, and to prepare. It was just a matter of preparation and really basically breaking down my, my will. Um, so when I showed up down there, I was, pretty, I was pretty prepared to, you know, go through this process of, uh, of uh, hopefully replacing my addiction, you know, is what, what, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to find, you know, some way to let this thing go. And, uh, and it did, it did, it did like in, in the first 45 minutes of the treatment, it was, it was profound. So you went to a clinic in Mexico or where did you get the treatment? Yeah. At the Ibogaine Association, which was at the time in Rosarito, they're still there. They're still in, in the uh, border town um, near Tijuana. Um, they've been in operation for, they're probably the, they're the oldest West Coast operation and they're, they're, they're good people. And I, I was, that was where I went for my primary treatment. And that's where I stayed on um, to learn how to facilitate treatment. I want to ask you, you know, more about what exactly happened in the in the treatment, especially when you're doing the ibogaine journeys. Mm-hmm. But maybe we should just tell people what ibogaine is and how it kind of emerged as a, a drug addiction uh, treatment method. Well, it, it was an accident. Um, there was an, an an ex-addict, well, at the time was a practicing addict who who took Ibogaine in the 60s, 1962, Howard Lotsoff, um, basically kind of as a thrill-seek. Um, so the guy told him it was an African root, you know, that it was an extract from an African root, and that it was kind of a strange, strange um, substance. It wasn't quite hallucinatory. It was more visionary and dreamlike. And he took this, and to his astonishment, three days later, you know, kind of realized, oh, my God, I'm not in opiate withdrawal. I should be really, really sick. And he tried that with seven others and found it to be successful in, um, in arresting opiate withdrawal, which was the primary purpose of study in the beginning. 
Uh, then what started happening is they started seeing that the same results were happening, and it was resetting the mind in different areas around cocaine and alcohol, methamphetamine, even nicotine. And um, why it works across the board is kind of an interesting uh, process that they're studying right now. You know, why would one substance be able to not only stop opiate withdrawal, but also reset and take away cravings for other substances? So um, it's been a profound substance of study for the last 15 years. And it's getting a lot more recognition as an addiction interrupter. And it originates um, as a sacred healing uh, spirit plant um, from indigenous people in West Africa. Is that right? Yeah, Gabon and Cameroon are kind of the the small nest egg place where this root has been used for initiation into rite of passage into manhood and womanhood. It's it's, it's used for both sexes. It's it's always been a... um, uh, a unity-type um, rite of passage for both male and female. It's not, it's not dis- like kind of discriminatory, in other words, where in some cultures it's always been, you know, segregated, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, yeah, it's been used for, for thousands of years, but it's really been a, a structured church called the Vuiti for oh, the last 150 years. It's been more like an organized religion, and it's... There's two, thousand, two million members in Gabon from the Bwiti Church. It's that actual um, organized religious rite, and it's part of the sacrament of that church is to go through this process as an initiate using the aboga root. And the ibogaine is an isolated active alkaloid out of many alkaloids that seems to be the one that hits this reset and also facilitates dreams. So it's in a sense, um, iboga is uh, which is the root that it's it starts from before it's um, uh, distilled, I guess, into ibogaine. That is kind of a psychedelic or hallucinogen in the sense that it's a sacred plant that, like other cultures, many cultures around the world have a visionary or hallucinogenic plant that's used as part of their religious and spiritual practices. And then the person who sort of stumbled onto it, was he, this was before the isolated part was discovered, is that right, or is that... Um... No, it was the ibogaine, it was the actual isolated alkaloid, it wasn't the, it wasn't the root bark, it was, um, it was the ibogaine, hydrochloride, um, which is the same as what we use today, and um, yeah, so it was, it was, you know, it was in the Western world, and ibogaine's been around for... Since the 50s, they, they had utilized, and the French had found about it, you know, and has utilized it on small, small doses for, like, a stimulant kind of effect. And um, it's not a comfortable experience as far as it's, um, it has some kind of interesting side effects. Well, yeah, tell us, uh, about, tell us about what happened to you. I mean, you went to Mexico kind of looking for some, uh, you know, relief and cure for the addiction. And then what, what happened? I mean, you took, you took this, and how, how was it? Were you in a room that you were sort of stayed in for a long time, or were you out in nature, or what, what, what was it that happened? Well, at, at that time, <laughs> this is really funny to think about, because I can, I can barely imagine this kind of setting, but um, it, was in a, it was in a small hospital in um, Playa de Tijuana, you know, that was monitored by a doctor, and um, it was, you know, basically kind of like a, it was comfortable, it was kind of a gurney room with tile floors, and uh, they administered it in the daytime, which is, you know, something that we, we try to do this at nighttime. And uh, it started at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, and I was pretty ill. I was, I'd been almost three days without methadone and two days 
well, one and a half days without any heroin and in about three days without any methamphetamine. So I was pretty garbled. But what it really did was help benefit me in the long run. And, uh, you know, they helped keep me comfortable with a little volume and that kind of thing. But the initial dose was a one-third dose. They do, we do a test dose to, to, to see what people's sensitivity and, you know, to see if there's any kind of uh, strong reaction that would be a, considered negative or something like that. The term allergy comes up, but it's not really accurate. And then about an hour later, they give you uh, a flood dose. We've changed that a little bit, but for me, that worked perfect. Um, and then the initial part of the treatment started with some, some dreaming uh, about a living tree, a tree that was alive, very much alive, and was trying to intimidate me. And one of the branches um, tried to intimidate me, and I explained to this branch that I wasn't afraid of it, that I'd met it before, and that I knew who it was, which profoundly came out of some place in my body. I have no idea why I was familiar with this tree spirit creature. And um, soon after, the, the second dose hit, and due to methamphetamine use, sometimes when the ibogaine hits really fast and strong, it, it kind of knocks you unconscious. So I, I basically fell asleep for the remaining four hours of my treatment. It's generally a four- to six-hour visionary treatment. And um, I woke up not feeling really well, but felt pretty comfortable in my body. I felt the receptors in my body in the first 45 minutes of the treatment be filled up as far as like um, the pain in my spine, the, the discomfort in my joints, the, um, the symptoms of withdrawal basically left within 45 minutes. And I felt it go all the way into my fingernails, into the tips of my hair. I mean, it went everywhere and filled it up. And it, that was an intimidating feeling at first and then realized it went in three major waves through my body. And I realized, oh, my God, my addiction's done, that part of it. And then, like I said, soon after, I, I went to sleep, I guess. It, it felt more like a, being knocked out, but it was basically going to sleep. And then the following day, when I got back to the main recovery house and woke up, I just started crying. I realized that I didn't have to, to use anymore. And got up and had a... a bowl of cereal without sugar on it, a cup of black coffee, which I hadn't had in a year, and took my clothes off and laid out in the sun for the remaining three days of the primary integration period, and was profoundly affected by the fact that my teeth had stopped hurting overnight, um, the sugar cravings had gone away, um, this desire for... Uh, it was just very, very interesting to see this like happen so fast, because having detoxed before, um, your body doesn't rebalance itself very quickly. It's a very long, drawn-out process of discomfort for weeks and weeks. And um, this had happened, like, overnight. And uh, do, what do you make of the vision that you had, the, the dream of the uh, the tree? Have you had more thought about that since having it? Um, well, it was my introduction, you know. I... I I, I've had opportunities to ask about it in other sessions with um, different people. And, um, you know, during their treatment, I was offered the opportunity to ask questions about it. And it was. It was my introduction to this spirit plant. And it was profoundly clear to me that I had known it, that it's part of my genetic building for me. I am actually familiar with this spirit. Um, I don't know 
if that's through our genetics or through our family order or if it's something from past life. I really don't know why I knew this this being, and he really did try to intimidate me. He screamed at me. He roared at me. It was like this big fire of a face. and um, <laughs> I didn't laugh at it. I was respectful, but I, I definitely had a sense of comfort of knowing who it was. And, you know, I've been in kind of in service to that since, <laughs> since that moment. I mean, I I, I pretty much um, realized within that first three days of integration that my my old life was done, and I and I basically crossed a, a line in the sand and and I have not gone back. I just moved past that line, and it's a profound experience to be able to look back really quickly after that primary treatment and realize every day of my using was preparing me for a new role in my life. It was. It was everything I needed. It was every hit I needed. It was everything I needed in order to move past that line. Boy, you, when um, you're stuck on the other side of that line, it just seems like it just seems like un, it's an unbearable hell of repetition. Had you been a um, a spiritual person prior to this experience? Because it sounds like this um, was yeah. Uh huh. But it was a real conver- I mean, I, it was a real conversion in in some kind of sense or some kind of spiritual awakening experience. It sounds like. Well. There was an awareness awakening is what happened. I mean, I think a spiritual awakening is something that happens, well, it can happen, you know, I think real quickly. And um, I guess I guess the comparison is, is that there was an awareness awakening. There was, there was some part of my being that became aware of, of who and what I really needed to be and do. And, um, and like, like I said, it was a non-turn-back point. It was like, and it was, it was an and, and a spiritual awakening could be, I think I had many of those in my experiences using substances, and then using the experience of getting off substances, I had many spiritual experiences. But um, as far as a genuine awakening, um, you know, this was, this was a turn-your-head kind of deal. I mean, it, it was, uh, and that was just my personal experience, you know. Was this a lasting effect? I mean, were you, were you able to... What happened after that? Were you able to just kick um, the drugs at that point? Well, yeah, I, I, I haven't used opiates since. I mean, I was over three and a half years ago. Um, I did have a second treatment eight months later. I had a, a five-day run on methamphetamine, and that was over three years ago now. Um, and, yeah, I haven't touched substances since. Um, uh, the second treatment really, really helped. Like I said, you know, it's just... I'd started to develop a relationship with this particular spirit, you know, and um, I saturated myself in the environment of um, treatment for, you know, uh, nine months. So it was pretty. It was a pretty protective kind of uh, environment and offered a lot of training and opportunity to see how this thing was working in other people, you know. And are there side effects to the ibogaine? I mean, what are the kind of the risks or, or dangers? Because I want to talk about it kind of in general, but I just was wondering, like, did you suffer any, any negative effects from the treatment? Me? No, I had no negative side effects whatsoever. I didn't throw up during the, the session, um, which is one of the common ones. I didn't have a whole lot of ataxia, which is another common side effect. What is, um, uh, what is ataxia? Uh, it's a loss of motor coordination. Oh, it's like it's a, being, like a drunken kind of. Yeah, what happens is it's a real the the substance is a it's it's a pretty much wants your full attention kind of substance. 
So it's really, really difficult to move. And if you move, it induces nausea. And so you lay pretty much primarily still for about 6 to 12 hours, um, which is very relaxing. I mean, if you're, you know, you just put just going to basically be in a dream state anyway, so you kind of tuck yourself into bed kind of thing, and you just lay as still as possible during the primary um, the primary process. If you do get up, it's, it's really prone to make you nauseous. I'd say about one-third of the people experience vomiting. Um, the nausea is pretty common if you do any movement at all, but it doesn't mean you're going to get have any vomiting, but um, in some cases, people vomit a lot and have to, you know, they're in some kind of purging process and they're trying to get rid of something. But in terms of uh, toxicity or drug dangers, there, there really aren't any. Well, there's cross-contradictions. Um, like if you use after you've taken Ibogaine, you can kill yourself really easily. Like, a, like, in what's, you, like, in, like how if you, if you just went back to heroin use or methamphetamine yeah. use? Yeah. So it, yeah. It, it can potentiate the power of those drugs, then you would have an yeah. overdose, is that right? Not only potentiate them, but because all your receptors are clean. I mean, it's like your body is really, your receptor sites are buffed clean. And so, you know, it's, it's really a potential hazard <clears throat> to use um, after the Ibogaine, which is, you know, there's a couple things that we have to really protect people for. And one of them is, is an environment where they can integrate for a few days so that, um, that opportunity isn't completely available because they can easily overdose and die. Um, one of the other things is is that, that especially in um, not so much in people doing psychospiritual or personal development work, but at any time you're dealing with anybody that's been in active addiction, there's compromises in the body, whether it's the liver, um, the heart, you know, the different, um, the, the, you know, your kidneys. Uh, there's there's just other health aspects that have to be evaluated and, and screened beforehand. You know, we do EKGs and uh, a full liver panel just to find out uh, the state of the cardiovascular system and the state of the, uh, of the body's ability to break down Ibogaine and to be able to eliminate the toxins that are broken loose in the system. So I want to I find out more about the work that you do in, uh, in Mexico at the center you direct. And also, I want to get a little bit more deeply into the spiritual side of this. But tell us a little bit more, before we get into that, about the status of Ibogaine use uh, internationally. I know that there have been a lot of studies that have been done uh, confirming that even in laboratory animals, it reduces, it has this, this power to reduce the cravings and, as you say, to, to affect the receptor sites and change the whole withdrawal process. So what, I know it's illegal in the United States, but is it, it's used in other countries, and what have been the studies and what have been the results of that? Well, right now, um, the classification is still pretty neutral in a lot of countries. In a lot of countries, it's not recognized as a substance at all of any kind of medicinal value. Mexico is one of them where they don't even recognize it. It's more like snake urine. It falls into a category of a non-substance substance. Um, other countries, like um, I know that France just went Schedule One. United States is Schedule One, which means no medicinal value, which is kind of a funny scheduling to put around a substance that stops these kind of anyway um, stops these kind of uh, addictions. Um, Canada is is recognizes it as a you know, as a substance for, for use. South America has no regulations. Um, obviously, Africa has no regulations. And um, England has no regulations. And Amsterdam and, you know, Europe 
Europe is still pretty really wide open. Um, so it, it's it's just you know really it's just in its beginning state of being utilized in addiction therapy. So it, it just it hasn't got a, a whole lot of focus yet. But there is an there is experience of clinics and hospitals and places around in other countries in Europe and Canada where they've been using this for years and it's it's been very successful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just got back from the Ibogaine um, conference in New York City, and um, you know they think that based on the collection of studies from, from the last 15 years, there's been about a total of 5,000 people treated with this substance for addiction therapy, which is a really small number. <laughs> I mean, when you take the community of addicts, um, but the point being is, is that it's showing that it works. And St. Kitts has had a clinic with Deborah Mash that has been really collecting data, and they're starting to collect data at the Iboga uh, Therapy House in Canada for MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They've been collecting data for the efficiency and for the longevity of after. You know, I mean, it's one thing to detox somebody, but what's what's going on six months later? You know, is the other question. And um, and so you know they're. All the clinics are starting to participate in these studies. And there's about, oh, I'd say, seven to ten clinics that are really operating right now. And so, um, you know, and we're all in kind of communication with each other. So so tell us about the um, clinic that you started in Mexico. And I know you have a very spiritual approach to it. It just got started a couple of years ago. Is that right? No, well, we just got started here um, this January. This is our first season. And, um, you know, it was based out of my experience um, from working in, in Tijuana, which was a medical profile, which, um, you know, was a medically sound, safe profile for, you know, for, for safety for detox. And it offers a lot. And then some of the other aspects, you know, that we started to realize is, is that we have to really acknowledge and respect this aspect of the deity that resides in this plant. And it's an obvious deity to me. And um, one of the things we wanted to best be able to provide were the, the elements that that, that that deity is basically expressed through us, which is our collective group, you know, um, that do the work. And uh, some of those aspects were the jungle, you know, where, where we are is we're in an environment where... Um, you know, we're kind of at the Tropic of Cancer, you know, so we're not quite at the equator where Gabon, Africa is, but we're wanting to have the elements and the sounds and the, the sensations of the jungle environment. The other thing that was really important was warm salt water. Um, it's super healing and it's super vitalizing. And so we started, like, looking where, where we could best uh, establish a clinic to start providing some of the, just some of the basics around what we felt would be best to help honor and, you know, and show respect towards the practice of this medicine. And, um, you know, I haven't been to Gabon. I haven't had the opportunity to be initiated by the, by the, with the root bark, the aboga. But we were just trying to follow some of the instructions that were given to us. And, you know, the other aspect is, is, is that a home-like setting seemed to be better than a clinical hospital setting. And that's what most of the clinics are doing, and that's, you know, it seems to be the most comfortable um, 
for you can bring the safety of a medical clinic into a home and and create the same safety standards as you would as if you were doing it in a hospital somewhere. And how do the um, treatments actually go? So people come from the U.S. and they do they how long do they stay? And then what kinds of um, experiences have people had? What kinds of results are you having? Well, the first thing we really wanted to do is we wanted to make sure people stayed long enough. You know, so um, people coming for non-addiction therapy, you know, that are basically coming for personal development or because they have uh, depression or have had, you know, obsessive-compulsive type of behavior, you know, five days has is, is been a, a pretty comfortable time frame because it's a single-dose treatment. Um, people coming for um, addiction for alcohol, or um, opiates is a minimum of seven days. Um, that seems to to be enough time to allow for additional treatments if necessary. You know, what we call follow-up booster treatments, which are normally one-third doses, um, two to three days after the uh, uh, the formal uh, treatment day. And uh, you know, and cocaine and stimulants seem to take even a little bit longer, up to ten days, because you have to hit it a couple of times. Um, because it's such an assaultive, uh, stimulants are so assaultive to the egoic mind, you know, it's such a mind-based uh, substance that it takes uh, a little while to help reset that part of the system. But people's experiences have been where, you know, they've come in, uh, we pick them up at the airport, uh, they have a night to spend the night, they have a day of integration here in the community, hopefully they get to go in the ocean and cleanse, and we have a couple things that we try to, offer as you know some of the traditions is to cleanse in the ocean and to prepare for that treatment we try to do the treatments you know starting at sunset which is another aspect of what we're trying to respect in some of the tradition um, because it seems to be really effective in the evening hours and it has the profundity of awaking into a new day you know um, uh, so it's an all-night treatment you, you rarely sleep and um, you know, and then the dreams are personal. The dreams experience, it doesn't always happen. Um, the medicine is always, always felt. Whether there is a, a profound dream experience, you know, depends on what was necessary to be revealed at that time. Most people have dreams. Um, some have a real fast dream process, you know, that exists, um, where just a ton of information is just poured through the system. Um, which is a release process. Uh, it's kind of like what you're doing is because you're so fully awake, but you're so fully dreaming, it's like aligning the subconscious, the unconscious, and the conscious mind all kind of get in communication for a period of time. And it's just releasing uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of stuck energy in the body. And you can feel it. It's not, a, it's not such a head-trippy kind of substance. It's a body-trippy. I mean, you feel this substance pulsing through your body. And it's, um, it's very stimulating, and it's very energetic, you know, and it's just basically cleansing the inside of you. I mean, you can feel it energetically just going through all your systems. And, uh, um, you know, people that are very comfortable most of the time during the experience, you know, we try to kind of get them started slowly and bring them into it. You know, we're not into an assaultive type therapy. Like, I consider my first treatment a little bit assaultive. Um, but we're, we're much more gentle and much more willing to listen to what the body's needs are and um, have become quite intuitive in that process. 
and uh, so we build the body up into a to a to a, a state of heightened um, experience. And like I said, generally, it's a very it looks it appears like people are sleeping, but they're just dreaming intensely. And we try to uh, offer the proper music uh, for the setting, or sometimes no music at all. But in a lot of cases, we try to use traditional music. What kind? What are some examples of some of the things that people report from these visionary dreaming states? Well, depending on people's work that they come to do, um, a lot of time it's a lot of self-reflective. It's a lot of history. It's a lot of history about who they are, where they came from, what's been going on in this life. It, it normally in the first treatments it'll stick to that depending on you know what's available, but it has a lot to do with decision-making processes that placed you in either off the path or on the path during your lifetime. Um, a lot of times you'll see a lot of different family members in the, in the dreams. Um, in a lot of cases you can ask questions, you know. There's a lot of questions you can ask to find out more about what's being revealed to you. I mean, and that's just a, an internal personal dialogue between you and uh, people's awareness that there's a presiding spirit or the awareness of spirits in the room has been something that's reported quite often. Um, people often feel that, the, that there are people in the room playing the music. I mean, they often feel that there are trusted um, spirits helping guide them along. Um, this is not totally common, but it's not uncommon. And, um, um, yeah, they, I mean, they, they, see, they see themselves, they see a lot of Africans, <laughs> is the bottom line, is people see a lot of Africans and a lot of African representation, which is nothing that we're offering to them as information ahead of time. It's just part of what comes with the plan. And what about people who, because I know that for a lot of people, an addiction process is often related to uh, abuse experiences that maybe they had in, in childhood or difficulties that they had in their families. Do people end up processing those kinds of experiences as well? Yeah, you know, the, 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 the state of trauma release that happens during the treatment is profound. A lot of it happens the following day. I mean, this is a 36-hour extended journey. I mean, this medicine lasts at least 24 hours actively in the system that you notice it. And so the initial dream phase can really unleash a lot of information that can and can't be metabolized and comprehended. A lot of what comes up is a lot of different emotional states from the following day. Is, um, is an integration and self-reflective period. And we really try to host a real sacred period of time of quietness for that process to continue because stuff is moving at a much slower pace by then. The medicine is kind of subsided in its heavy uh, voltage kind of purification. And there's a lot of self-reflection about what's been happening in the, in the evening hours. And... Uh, a lot of emotional releases can happen during that time. Uh, people can feel kind of down, you know. A lot of the time people re-experience their trauma or re-experience the uh, emotional states that have been basically imprisoning them. And it's a period of time where, they, where the doors are open. I mean, what we've done is we've opened something up. And it's, it's, it's Probably the most common thing we say to people is, is that it's releasing stuff. The doors are opening. It's letting it out. It's just letting it out for this period of time. And then when those doors close again, that stuff's not getting back in. And it's just part of the experience of consciously experiencing what's going on at that time. Um, 
you know, people people have all kinds of different experiences around this. I mean, there's this, some feel an immediate sense of elation, like I did, you know, the following day, a release from prison. Um, other other people, um, you know, really stay in bed for the entire next day and, you know, really have to wait a while before they're really willing to come back out of the, of the room they were treated in. You know, we treat people in the same room that they stay in for the duration of the stay. And, um, and that's perfect. That's a perfect time to just let that stuff out. And it's not uncommon to cry, and it's not uncommon to... Um, anger doesn't seem to come up very often, um, but it is a period of time of, of release. And you, in one of the things that you wrote, you mentioned um, the idea of, of that the often the depression or the addiction that someone is experiencing is actually experienced as a spirit itself. That's kind of exercised. It's like an exorcism of that spirit. Is that something that happens commonly? Yeah, you know, this has been this has been something that you know I, I've gotten to watch a number of people go through this process and. Um, it's really interesting to see what shifts. You know, what is it that's shifting in somebody? I mean, there's a common denominator of, of treatment outcomes that were happening in the first three days of watching people come with, with all kinds of intense, um, I guess, conditions. Is, you know, I have to still watch my vocabulary because I don't find anything to be a problem anymore. I think that they're just motivations to try to get us to find where we can get these things dealt with. Um, so these conditions can manifest in all kinds of different behavior. And I think that they come, I think that they come from trauma, um, not the kind of trauma of getting beat up or abused or anything like that. I think, I think the body actually knows how to respond to those kind of traumas. It's, it's more the subtle trauma of life. Um, the small things that have been built up over a long period of time um, where the esteem and the personality um, become attached to it in the ego or in the body becomes somewhat in relationship to oneself in a negative relationship. I had an extremely negative relationship with myself. It was not a positive relationship with myself. And you would think as human beings that we have a choice you know, that we consciously know we have a choice. But it seems to be pretty common that somehow our human species, at this period of time anyway, keeps choosing to have this negative relationship with the self. And, um, and it's serving a purpose for some reason, either for protection or it's just, it's installed. It's an installed experience. And one of the first things that seems to be the result of the Ibogaine treatment is, is that that relationship with the self starts to change. And that's profound. That, that means that something has been uninstalled. And the only way that I know how to really understand it, and it's the simplest way, and it's, I know it triggers some people, is, is, is the only way I can imagine these things is, is as, as if they were spirits. And it makes me wonder, so at what point, at what point in the relationship with myself that I step out of my body and make a space for something available come into my body and start taking over my house. And, uh, you know, I could see that happen in, in situations where I would confront certain individuals and I would watch myself recoil or return or regress somewhere else and some other aspect of myself would step in. And it wouldn't be the self that I am. It would be some other protective self. And so it's always interested me 
you know, let's say you live alone for a long time and you observe this behavior in yourself and you're saying, well, if it's not anybody around me, then how come this is happening? How come one day I'm feeling really, really good, I'm cruising along through life, and the next morning I wake up and I'm in this basically debilitating state of, like, depression or this debilitating state of, like, just accelerated mind thoughts, this state of neurotic trying to control my physical environment for some type of level of comfort on the inside, you know, whether it's cleaning or whatever it is. I'm trying to control something, and I'm like, where did this come from? And I really started observing these things in myself, and I started observing them in people I was treating, and I started realizing this is a separate self that's basically somehow stepping in, into, my, into, my, into my house and is operating through me. And so the word spirit comes up because they come and go. You know, they come and go. And so it doesn't really matter, you know, how to describe it. It's something that most humans, if you just talk about this, are actually familiar with this, this concept. Yeah, what you're, describing and, to, what you're describing to me sounds very familiar. And I know a lot of people who struggle with um, not just addictions, um, alcohol and drugs and, and different addictions, but also you know, any kind of mental health difficulty. It's often experienced as like a possession state, like something yeah. from the outside comes in and it's kind of uh, grabbed you and it's sort of, and just that image that you have of, of you separate from yourself and then something else comes in. It's like this relationship that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the opportunity to come in unless you've first stepped out of yourself. And, and I totally believe that, that that is how the rules work. And whether it's, it's such an interesting question, that once it's set up, it doesn't matter whether it's a spirit or not, it's definitely going on. And, you know, whether it comes from the outside or whether it's something that's already going on with, with the inside, you know, it's going on. And the pharmaceutical industry, you know, which I'm very familiar with personally, <laughs> you know, and also on different levels with a lot of people I work with is kind of a, it's a real scary thing because on one level, pharmaceuticals, I mean, I had taken so many different cocktails of pharmaceuticals, you know, that were uh, administered by a doctor or psychiatrist or, you know, in, in the professional field of mental health, uh, hospitals, etc., crisis units, um, treatment facilities, all these kind of places were, you know, really trying to do the best to offer some kind of stability or help. And in the long, in the long term, and I mean three months, that was like long term, these things not only stopped working, but they were debilitating and were creating a negative. It was actually, you know, continuing the process of um, this, this space of not being in the body, this this experience of not being in my own body, um, which just had all these new spirits show up. These other crazy, like, spirits started entering in, and I started acting even more different than I did even without the medication. So, you know, these things are... I see this happen all the time in people in this dependency for just just pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical drug industry for antidepressants and anti-manic uh, and anti-convulsives, which are what they use more than not for, for mania and um, psychotic, you know, antipsychotics. And, and they start mixing and matching these things, and it's like, um, you know, I'm just really grateful that I haven't had to take any pharmaceutical medications for, you know, three years now. I mean, it, I think I'm finally returning to a normal state. It's taken as long for those to get out of the body as, as for the, uh, 
the street drugs. Do you work with um, clients there at your clinic who are struggling with coming off of psychiatric drugs, or are there some people who are on them who are yeah. go through the treatment? Or how, do, how do you deal with that? I'm very interested in that. Well, we have to have some space between. There's certain, there's certain psychotropic you know, treatment uh, medications that really cannot be in the system during the time of treatment. Um, some of the SSRIs and MOA inhibitors and, you know, um, and some of the anticonvulsives, what we try to do is uh, try to get them out of the system and taper. And so, you know, when people start wanting to come for treatment, there's a whole protocol for preparing the body, in other words, with supplement therapy, and then there's a whole other protocol for uh, tapering down and coming off of these substances. And that's a real personal choice. I mean, people have to really be prepared to want to, um, to leave that aspect because people have a relationship to pharmaceuticals just like they have a relationship to street drugs. So you really ask you really ask people to come off of the psychiatric drugs before they do yeah. this treatment. I see. I see. Yeah, at least at least like uh, seventy two hours to ninety six hours off of um, your last administering of any um, antidepressant. You know, and if people feel like they need to go back on it, you know, as a result of their treatment, you know, um, for like let's say somebody that's been on opiates or something and they've been taking antidepressants. If they feel they need to go back on, that's fine. If people are actually coming for the treatment of depression and are wanting to get completely free of pharmaceuticals, you know, there's a strict p- protocol to follow in preparation for that. And, you know, it's like um, it takes about 72 hours for the integration of the Ibogaine. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a period of time where they really need to be in our care and um, allow for their bodies to adjust to this new state of self. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's really important to know, and it's one of the most important questions we ask is, is, is what kind of medications are you on and what you're taking and, you know, does it have any cross-contradiction with the Ibogaine? So, um, you know, I mean, it's just a real important aspect of preparing for treatment. Now, I, I know in an ideal world, insurance would pay for these kinds of treatments if they're shown to be safe and effective, but uh, what, how, what is this cost, and then how, what kind of accessibility might there be in terms of people who can't afford it, or um, how do you deal with, with that issue? Well, there actually is a financial compa- uh, financing company that will do financing for, um, for medical procedures that has been an assistant to us. I wish I had the name to them. Um, in terms of getting loans to help people pay for yeah the there's that there's that approach to it um, you know eventually we're we're going to have the credit card system available we have like a PayPal system available which can be done through the credit card um, we do some sliding scale you know we really want to make it an opportunity for people um, in the beginning we we obviously didn't realize what our cost to operate and run a business were so um, you know, I think we were a little low in our our our, our pricing. Um, right now, what we're charging is um, if it's if it's a non-addiction treatment, it's thirty-two hundred dollars for non-addictive individuals. Uh, for addiction, um, for people having addiction um, issues, which means that they're staying longer, basically, it goes to thirty-seven hundred. And for opiate treatments, it's four thousand. And for methadone, it's forty-five hundred dollars. And so, you know, we're kind of in a range of about, it's, it really is just based on how much time they need to spend with us. And, um, you know, it's really interesting. If this is something that really talks to people, 
it's been interesting how um, how the support shows up for people uh, to be able to really calm, to be able to do the treatment. You know, um, in a lot of cases, um, people have been sponsored by people. Uh, we have, on certain uh, occasions, had people who have gone through treatment that are willing to sponsor somebody for treatment. I mean, that's a common thing, and has been able to help people get here if they can't afford it on their own. Um, we're trying to really develop a um, kind of a, a pool for people who have done treatment and who felt really good about what they did and they can, that, that they can contribute, you know, to help people that can't get in. Um, I mean, if we could run a nonprofit, it would be great, you know, then we could actually have people and be able to assist them. But it seems to be part of the journey is also part of the aspect of it is, you know, depending on the individual and what their story is, um, you know, we consider it the bike. It's like if you give it away, man, people don't have a tendency to hold on. I know that that was my experience. I mean, I hawked my motorcycle. I had garage sales. I begged, borrowed, and stole for my treatment, and I kept it. Now, I'm not saying that that's right for everybody. I know that that's not the truth for everybody. But in my particular case, it really helped me to hold on to what I had. It made me willing, you know, to keep what I had. And because um, I have this, like, thing for taking things for granted, you know, in the past, and that was what that was how, you know, I treated gifts. And so we are, we are unfortunately um, just about running out of, of time, but can you say, um, give us some information about how people get in touch with you and your website, information uh, on the Internet. And then I guess I also want to you know, remind people about the Ibogaine Walk that's, uh, that's coming up. Yeah. Um, the, the best website to reach us through is, is awakeninginthedream.com which is, you know, www.awakeninginthedream.com. Um, also, um, ibeginagain.org is, um, is our parent site who um, has been probably one of the longest practicing iBegin providers. Um, we're partners with iBeginagain. And um, there's uh, our phone number that can be reached is 503 922 one zero eight nine. That's five zero three nine two two one zero eight nine, and that's the office for the Awakening in the Dream House in Sayulita, Mexico. Rocky, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on Madness Radio. Uh, very cool, and thank you so much, Will, for uh, you know for for it's it's public awareness that is going to make the opportunity for ibogaine treatments to be available to people in the world, and you know. It, you just never know how you're going to find it, you know, and how people are going to hear about it because it's, it's just an important improvement in addiction therapy that can just get people started. And t- remind us again about the the Ibogaine Walk, too. Yeah, in, in uh, September, I think September 15th, will be the Ibogaine Walk starting from Washington, D.C. to New York City. Uh, it'll be stopping at many major cities, and it's it's basically to inform the public of the existence of Ibogaine as a therapeutic treatment for addiction and for opiate and for stimulant and alcohol. And people can find out about that at ibogainewalk.com, I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E walk.com. Thanks a lot, Rocky, for joining us today. All right. Thank you, Will.
And you've been listening to an interview with Rocky Caravelli. Rocky is the director and counselor with an Ibogaine treatment clinic in Mexico called Awakening in the Dream House. You can find out more information about Rocky's work and the treatment that they offer there by going to awakeningindhedream.com. And also the Ibogaine Walk, which is um, starting in uh, New York City coming up in September. You can find out more information about that at ibogainewalk.com. That's about all the time we have this week for Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. 